All you reality TV lovers, we've got an extra special episode of The Girls Uninterrupted with our very own Aisha Scott from the latest season of Below Deck Mediterranean, all thanks to Hey You, the best of reality TV. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. So, that Aaron Smith Rugby World Cup try. (sighs) That one that wasn't allowed because of a knock-on that happened, well, what felt like 10 minutes earlier, should have been allowed. I am lost for words about this. You're not alone. You're not alone, Jess, although I have found some. Uh, In case you missed it, uh, Stuff Understands World Rugby has privately acknowledged to the ABs that the ruling out of Smith's try was actually outside of the rules. But here's the catch. It won't acknowledge it publicly, just privately, just quietly. Oh, well, guess what? World Rugby, we will acknowledge it publicly. Because it's excruciating news. Like, if everyone can take themselves back to that game and that try, that I, I was so happy when they scored that try. Like, I was up, I was, like, you know, punching the air. And then to have it overturned was when the whole Sunday turned for me pretty much after that call. I mean, you lost your damn voice about it. <laughs> Will Rugby is lucky we're not coming after them for that. I don't think I've ever jumped so high after Aaron Smith scored that try. But Jeff Wilson certainly is going to need a lot of croissants to get over this one, I think. Poor Jeff. Him and me both. Anyway, kia ora, this is Newsable. I'm Jess. And I'm Imogen, and this is what's worth talking about. We're getting the latest on the Israeli hostages still being held in Gaza from Sky News' Middle East correspondent. We have all you need to know after the High Court found Dr Ashley Bloomfield unlawfully ordered councils to add fluoride to their water. A former Black Caps coach gives us his hot takes ahead of tonight's Cricket World Cup semi-final between New Zealand and host country India. Big game and the bright orange item. Wellington City Council is using to make its Christmas tree this year. <laughs> you sound very confused by that, but we will explain. We've got all that coming up in a moment here on Newsable. Newsable takes time and resources to produce. Please support our mahi and visit stuff.co.nz support. It's been uh, more than a month now since Hamas's surprise attack on Israel that left around 1,200 Israelis dead and saw more than 200 hostages taken back to Gaza. Since then, only five have been rescued or released and little is known about the negotiations behind the scenes. The hostage situation has seen many Israelis turn against Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu over a perceived lack of action, with suggestions Netanyahu should authorise a swap deal, which would see Israel release all of its Palestinian prisoners in exchange for the return of the hostages. We're joined now by Alistair Bunkle, Sky News' Middle East correspondent. Alistair, thank you so much for taking the time to chat to us. Why is it proving so hard to get these hostages back? I think we can be certain that there is some very intense negotiations going on um, through a number of different channels. The Qataris seem to be the main channel to speak to Hamas. Now, don't forget that Hamas' political leadership is hosted in Qatar, in Doha. And so that gives the Qataris quite a strong hand in this. The Israelis and Hamas obviously have very different and quite firm positions on what they think should be an acceptable deal for a hostage release. So whilst the Israelis might say you should release all of our hostages unequivocally and immediately, Hamas are probably telling around saying, well, we're not going to do so until you also agree to maybe release a certain number of Palestinian prisoners from Israeli prisons. Uh, and then I think the reality on the ground is also really messy. Hamas claim, and I think this is credible, Hamas claim that they don't know where all the hostages are. 
they didn't take everyone hostage. There were other groups that once Hamas had broken through the fence, came in behind them and took any number of of men, women and children hostage. Right. Benjamin Netanyahu himself has been involved in some daring hostage uh, returns in the past, hasn't he? Because he was a member of Israeli special forces. And I think bringing hostages home is something that Israel really prides itself on normally and perhaps why this is such a big issue. Well, yeah, I mean, just on Netanyahu himself, yeah, you're right. Um, he was involved in the hostage rescue situation on a hijacked aircraft that was on the ground at what was Lod Airport in Israel at the time. It's hard to underestimate just what a big deal it is for the Israelis to have anyone captive. Mm. Look at Gilad Shalit, an Israeli soldier held captive for many years, and in return, Netanyahu was Prime Minister then agreed to release in excess of a thousand Palestinian prisoners. I think it was one thousand and twenty-seven in return for one soldier because it was that important. But amongst those one thousand, in excess of one thousand prisoners that he released, was Yahya Sinwar, and Yahya Sinwar is now the leader of Hamas in the Gaza Strip. Indeed. So this idea of a swap deal of Palestinian prisoners now, I think the number is about 1,000 and it's not quite 1,000 to 1 as the situation you described there. So how likely is is that uh, to actually happen? Well, depending on which accounts you read, Hamas are either saying it's all for all, so it's all of the prisoners they've got, which is um, just shy of 250, for all the Palestinians in Israeli prisons, which is in excess of 3,000 now in total. I think what is more likely, uh, at least according to current reports, is that it might be a swap for uh, women and children and elderly being held by Hamas and others in exchange maybe for women being held by the Israelis, Palestinian women being held by the Israelis. If there was a swap deal, what would that mean for the conflict in general? Would it be over? Um, Good question. No, I I don't think it would be over because I think that the Israelis have got two very clear objectives. One of those is to get their hostages out, uh, and the second is to eliminate Hamas. I think it is hard to see either a swap deal or just a hostage release deal without some sort of form of pause in the bombing. Whenever you do have a pause, I'm not talking about a ceasefire, ceasefire is certainly more formal, but a pause, uh, it can be harder to return to the fighting because international pressure will then go on Israel to elongate that pause. Thanks for all that, Alistair. Really appreciate your insight and the time you've taken to have a chat to us on that. That was Alistair Bunkle, Sky News' Middle East correspondent. And of course, we're talking about Israeli hostages just then, but there are also 11,000 Palestinians that have lost their lives in this conflict. If you want to read any more about it, go to stuff.co.nz. It was a tie. What was a tie? A poll on the flag. We decided to hold a second flag referendum. You decided here to hold a second referendum. <laughs> Fair. Okay. I decided to hold a second flag referendum here in New Zealand after the news the US state of Minnesota is in the market for a new flag and is holding its own competition to find one. And we are split down the middle. According to our results, 50% say they like our flag, 50% say they don't. I mean, I've, I've done some Googling. That is almost the same result as back in 2016, where it was 43% to 56%. Flags, man. Flags and referendums, they just do not go together. Anyway, to make sure you never miss out on a chance to give your opinion, make sure you follow us. Newsable NZ on Instagram. It appeared that a vehicle may have gone over the 80-metre cliff into the sea. There have been no bodies found despite considerable debris being washed ashore. Nine years ago, a man named John Beckenridge 
abducted his stepson, Mike Zhao Beckenridge. Soon afterwards, they vanished. Now, a new investigation is trying to find out what happened to them. This is The Lost Boy. Listen on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. The High Court has found Dr Ashley Bloomfield's order to add fluoride to more than a dozen drinking water supplies around New Zealand was unlawful. Bloomfield made the order back in July last year, while he was still Director General of Health, under a new law that meant he was in charge of making fluoridation decisions instead of local authorities. But now, a High Court judge has said he did not consider the Bill of Rights Act when making the call. Charlie Mitchell, a reporter for the press, has been covering this court case and is here to break it all down for us. Charlie, it's been a while. Welcome back to Newsable. Yeah, it sure has. Kia ora, thanks for having me. First of all, why was or is fluoride added to drinking water supplies? Fluoride has been added to community water supplies in New Zealand since about 1955. It's commonly done in the US, Canada, Australia. And the majority of dentists and public health experts will tell you that it really has a quite powerful impact on people's teeth, particularly children, and it really combats tooth decay in ways that are pretty substantial when you map it across all of society. You know, It's one of our biggest medical problems that people have is tooth decay. So any sort of intervention that can help prevent that is generally considered to be very effective and, and cost-effective particularly. Those don't sound like very controversial things you mentioned in there, Charlie. So why is it such an issue for some other people? Yeah, it's one of those issues, um, kind of like vaccines, I guess, that has just sort of percolated in in certain communities um, for quite a long time. Like fluoride has been contentious ever since it was first used in water supplies. To be fair, you can sort of see why. Um, Fluoride in excessive amounts is dangerous. It is toxic. I mean, they used it in bombs. It's a byproduct of fertilizer. You know, it, it's not um, great in itself. But when you add it in ideal amounts to the water supply, it does have like a demonstrable effect on people's oral health. So, where did this court case come from, and how did the judge come to this decision that Ashley Bloomfield was unlawful in his order to make? Was it fourteen uh, local authorities to start adding fluoride to their water? Basically, from. Um, From the Crown and and Ashley Bloomfield's point of view, they shouldn't really have to make this Bill of Rights assessment because the court had already kind of done it. So 2018, there was a Supreme Court case where the same group actually, New Health New Zealand, challenged the legality of councils adding fluoride to water supplies. And the Supreme Court basically said that, yes, it does technically violate the Bill of Rights because within the Bill of Rights, there's a right to refuse medical treatment. And fluoridation does kind of violate that, but they said, you know, it's a justifiable infringement. And we saw this argument with vaccine mandates, for example, during COVID. Mm. It was the same thing. Yes, it is technically a violation of the Bill of Rights, but it's a justifiable limitation on those rights. And so the Crown basically said, the court has already said this. We don't really need Ashley Bloomfield to be saying it again, basically, when making these orders. The, The court has come in and said, actually, yes. You didn't need to make that assessment and you didn't. So start again. So Charlie, what happens now? Does that mean that the areas where the fluoride was ordered to be added to don't have to order it or is there appeals to be made? Um, It's sort of unclear at the moment, actually. Um, The Ministry of Health told me that they received the decision and they're sort of figuring out what to do next. The judge in this case did not, you know, set aside the orders or, or anything like that. They basically said the two sides have to come to an agreement. 
And if they don't, then the court will make a decision. And it seems likely that this will mean either cancelling those orders or refining them in some way. It certainly will slow things down for sure. There's been this kind of push to expand fluoridation to a lot more of the country than, than has been previously. And this will definitely slow that down. That's Stuff's reporter for the press, Charlie Mitchell. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Coming up, wherever you are around the country, I doubt that you are a stranger to a road cone, and certainly not if you live in the nation's capital. But what else is the Wellington City Council planning on using its road cones for this festive season? You have to stick around to find out. And while you're sticking around, why don't you chuck us a like and a follow on your favourite podcast platform so we can bring you all the council weirdness whenever it happens. We are on yet another sporting knife edge. There have been so many this year. 2023, the year of the Kiwi nerves, because this time it's cricket. Tonight, the Black Caps face India, the home team, of course, in a semi-final at the World Cup in Mumbai. So with all that amazing support for India from the fans in the stadium and an unbeaten run by that home team, what chances do the Black Caps have that they can pull a win out of the bag? Well, someone who will know all about facing up to the challenge in a World Cup is former coach Mike Hessen, who's with us now. Kia ora, welcome to News of All. Kia ora, and uh, yeah, looking forward to it. Mike, the big question, can the Black Caps do it? The TAB aren't bagging them. Oh, look, they're certainly not favourites, but that's okay. Um, obviously in a two-horse race, and I think New Zealand's got every chance. Um, I think we're, we're fortunate the the venue we've got. We've had some success there in the past. India, as you said, are unbeaten, so they haven't had too many wobbles over the last sort of six weeks. So I guess our biggest challenge is to try and put them under a bit of pressure and uh, and see how they respond. So, And we've got plenty of talent in that group to be able to do so. There'll also be the pressure of being the home team, right? Is there any chance that India could choke? Have we seen that happen before? Every time they play for India, they're under pressure. And when you've got 1.4 billion people uh, that have an expectation that you win every game, um, occasionally you're not. So, um, you know, they've had to, to deal with getting bashed around a little bit, even when they have such a high winning percentage. But as I said, they haven't really been put under pressure other than the very first game of this tournament against Australia. And since that time, they've pretty much dominated every game. So uh, I certainly wouldn't call it a choke, but I'd certainly say that if they're put under pressure, I mean, you're a semi-finalist for a reason. You're in the top four teams in the world, so you can always be beaten. And you, of course, have been there with the team in this situation before. What would you be telling that Black Caps team. Well, I just it's a it's an opportunity rather than a than a pressure situation. It's a it's a chance to make a name for yourself and, and do something special for your country. So, but the only way you do that is by being pretty boring in terms of just going about your work. You know, New Zealand out of the nine games, eight of the games they played pretty well. You know, they won five of the eight, but even three of the four that they lost, outside of the the mauling that South Africa gave us, we were mm. were pretty competitive. You know, so many different players in that squad had good days. You know, we're entering a tournament at the the knockout stage. What's happened before is irrelevant. So it would be very much just focused on, as I said, how can we find ways to apply pressure to India by doing what we do best? And that, that'll be the focus this week. And of course, uh, there's another semi-final, South Africa v Australia. Who's your pick for that match tomorrow on Thursday evening? Well, it's pretty hard to go past Australia. I mean, just because of South Africa's record in knockout cricket, often they've dominated tournaments you know, for at least the best part of 24 years, 25 years in terms of Cricket World Cups, and they've never really got past the, the semi-final stage. And they've had some exceptional teams during that time. Mm. 
Of course, their Aussie cricket team will have something to prove after their uh, rugby team didn't quite perform so well. Hey, Mike, is that a steady the ship hat behind you that I can see? It actually is, yeah. No, Go on, put it on, put yeah. it on. Oh, I love it, and I hope you're wearing that, Mike. He's a former yeah. coach. Uh, thank you so much for your time. Pleasure. All right, there are officially 40 days until Christmas, and I think now and only now will I allow Christmas chat on the pod, with me included. I know you got some in there without me while I was sick. I will let that slide. I, it didn't go unnoticed, though, but now Christmas chat can officially commence. Okay, first question, have you got your Christmas presents yet? Okay, I should have established parameters. We're not talking Christmas presents. That's a step too far. There's still 40 days. But let me tell you why I have brought up Christmas chat. Oh, go on, I'm listening. Welly City Council is using something very interesting to uh, make its Christmas tree for the city this year. Okay. Road cones. Road cones? Yep, they're using road cones. It's a bit of an attempt of a funny ha-ha. They say the city's undergoing a number of infrastructural projects, so they're having some playful fun with road cones and making them into a tree. But I'm sure there's many a Wellington commuter. In fact, commuter anywhere in the country. You can't escape these things. Who would say there's zero comedy factor in a road cone? There's nothing merry about a road cone. There's nothing funny. And is this not adding more road cones? Because they're not going to be taking the road cones off the road. They're going to be adding road cones. Where is this Christmas tree? Is it on the road? That's the only place that I will allow. If if they're finishing their infrastructure project, which is all around Wellington, and they're taking those road cones, and in the spirit of Christmas, building them into a Christmas tree so we can look back on the year that was and all the frickin' roadworks that we've had to get through, that's the only time I'll allow this. I'm sometimes amazed how our national conversations revolve around road cones and potholes. You can't make a Christmas tree out of a pothole. Maybe that's the next thing. We can't fix your pothole, but look, I've turned it into a Christmas tree. You know what? That's the time to end the podcast. Let's not give anyone any suggestions. That's newsable for today. I'm Imogen Wells. I'm Jessica McCarthy. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll catch you tomorrow. Only Imo won't, just me. <laughs> Have a good holiday. Was this episode of Newsable usable? Then back NZ News by making a financial contribution at stuff.co.nz slash support. I think you're conflating a whole bunch of issues. You don't want to be held to account well, no, on I, I, rising child abuse no, numbers. You can manipulate crime statistics. I, I promised I wouldn't have a tattoo about gotcha journalism. Hang into the National Party's no, attack line there. That, that, I think that it would be a resignation offence if I didn't deliver tax reduction. It, it, yeah, we're, I'm not worried about it at all. Nothing iffy in there. That sits with you perfectly fine. That's what, we're, that's what we're focused on. Whatever happens in politics, the weird, the wonderful, the important, the thought-provoking, we got you. Listen to Tova wherever you get your podcasts.